Simone pulled from the pile of papers a chart she'd created listing the name of the next Englishman to be rescued on her list. She added first names and then surnames. Robert became Pierre. Colin became Gaston. Then there was Simone and Antoine. Place of birth had to be added using the method they used in Paris, choosing faraway places in France, small villages or towns that have been bombed, which make it difficult for the officials to check records. It was bad. It was worse than most people knew, which is what fascinated me. I'd read all these history books over 40 years, and I didn't know about all of this. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am happy to be joined by Linda Joy Myers, author of the novel, The Forger of Marseille. She says, you're trying to comfort everybody all the time. You're trying to make everything okay. And I said, oh my God, that's because I've been a therapist for 40 years. Linda Joy Myers has always been haunted by the power of the past to affect people in the stream of time. Her grandmother's stories about World War II sparked her interest in history, which she later integrated into her personal struggles with intergenerational trauma and her work as a therapist and writer. As the founder of the National Association of Memoir Writers, Linda Joy has authored four books on memoir writing, including The Power of Memoir and The Journey of Memoir. Her own memoirs, Don't Call Me Mother and Song of the Plains, have received prestigious awards. When she's not writing, Linda enjoys traveling, tending her garden, and sharing her passion for history with her children and grandchildren. Today, I'll be talking with her about her latest novel, The Forger of Marseille. Can you start talking uh, about your main characters, Mr. Lieb, Simone, and Cesar? Who are they and what circumstances bring them together? Mr. Lieb and is living in Berlin in 1938. He's a luthier. He makes violins. He teaches students um, how to play the violin. And he's the kind of adoptive father of a young woman named Sarah. They're a Jewish family in um, Berlin. Uh, Sarah's father died from injuries from World War I. And Sarah's mother, Eva, is a really close friend with Mr. Lieb. Uh, and they are like a family, but Mr. Lieb and Sarah's mother are just friends. And so in 1938, yeah, a lot's going on in Berlin and, and the, the world. And so they decide, he decides that they quickly needed to leave when a German Gestapo uh, officers started um, coming on to Sarah and making it clear he was going to take her under his wing. And so they escaped Berlin quickly and got to Paris. 
not a small deal. Good thing they did that a few weeks later with uh, Crystal Knox. And then they got to Paris, and you know, so Sarah is enjoying Paris, and she has a uh, Mr. Lieb has friends there, and he he has a, a another business person, another luthier that he is working with, and had a business there all these years, so it made it easier to get into France for that reason. And she goes to the museum. She's an artist, and she wants to develop her art career and meet people and all this and. All that is good, but she meets this uh, dark-haired young man um, at the uh, Café de Flora, um, uh, you know, in the left bank area, and um, they they have a little spark there. So that's how she meets him. He's a Spanish Republican who's escaped fairly from Franco's France up over this terrible route called the Retirada, where uh, Soldiers and families in um, at the at the in early '39 were escaping Franco, so he got out, and so his story is woven in also. And the three of them become connected for the rest of the book. And your novel's titled "The Forger of Mar Marseille." Were there like a, how how common was it for people to do this, and what were some of the risks involved? No, oh, yeah, um, well. This book in France now at that time, so so finally the war comes in June of 1940, comes to Paris, and there's the exodus out of Paris, and they join that exodus. It was very important for me to include that in um, in the book, and they get to Marseille, and of course, uh, well, Mr. Lieb has a friend there, another Luthier, and he takes them in, but that friend, Jules, knows people who are just beginning to go, wait a minute, this whole Patin thing, this whole collaboration as Vichy government is, you know, it's really bad. It's really dangerous. And um, so he introduces them to just a few people. Now, there wasn't an official resistance. I was given the dates 1941 and two, but actually I did a lot of research to make sure my book was accurate. And there were lots of people that actually most people don't know about unless they did the levels of research that I uh, was doing for this book. There were a lot of people helping the British soldiers uh, get back to England, rescuing them, as mentioned there in that part that I read, and helping refugees and, and Jews. They were all in danger because uh, Vichy France, it wasn't quote, occupied, unquote, but the Germans were there, the Gestapo was there, and they were going after people. So to show you how dangerous it was, there were, on trees, were hanging these red signs with a noose saying, you know, this is what is coming for you if you help anyone. So it was highly dangerous. People were getting caught. People were being put into camps. People were being sent back to, sent to Germany. They were being shot. I mean, it was bad. It was worse than most people knew, which is what fascinated me. I'd read all these history books over 40 years, and I didn't know about all of this. So, you know, the historical fiction curiosity <laughs> seeker was going after all this stuff that I, I just never heard of before. Well, how did you come across it then? Yeah, so the original... Um, 
the original kernel for the story was maybe 10 years ago, I read a book that talked about this real life American uh, person named Varian Fry, who came to Marseille to save, uh, and he had a list uh, formed by the Emergency Rescue Committee in New York City. And that committee found out that there were a lot of well-known artists and uh, <clears throat> writers and politicians, and most of them Jewish, uh, who were on Hitler's hit list. Hitler wanted to get rid of anybody who could think, anyone who had any opposite opinions from him, period, but especially if they'd been powerful or well-known. And so he got a hold of some of those names and no one else would, from that committee would, would go. So he was 32 years old. This is a detail I love. <laughs> He strapped $3,000 to his leg. So he smuggled in, you know, $3,000 and ended up in Lisbon, got to Marseille. And when he first got there, the American consul was like, ho-hum, you know, we, we really can't help you. And he realized he was kind of on his own. So he and various random people uh, found each other and began to um, create this uh, rescue situation, um, and it started off in the Hotel Splendide, which excitingly in doing this research, when you come into Marseille, you're standing at the top of a hill is where the train station is, this beautiful, um, beautiful artistically done train station, Art Nouveau and all this, and you look straight ahead, and there's a building there, and when he was there, that was the Hotel Splendide, and there was a big neon sign on it. <laughs> so um, he worked out at Hotel Splendide at the beginning, but immediately, of course, the police, um, he had to convince them he was just giving people money and food and ways to live. And the rescue operation, of course, was secret, and he would have gotten arrested immediately if they caught him at it. So you, you talk about Varian Fry, who is a character in the the novel. Can you talk a little bit about Sarah slash Simone and Cesar and um, who they represent as characters? And as far as the refugees, refugees go, like, what was their experience like that kind of uh, prompted you to say, you know, you wanted to mm -hmm. make characters based on that experience? Yeah, I got, got a fun story for you. So Sarah, um, Sarah and Mr. Lee, you know, come into Paris, but I learned something through the research that, that was very important. Not, not early on in writing the book, but kind of halfway through, I, I, I just kept researching and researching and researching obsessively. And sh sure enough, I'd find new stuff. I, I mean, I found new stuff to put in the book up until, you know, almost the end. Um, of writing it, and so what I found out is that in Par in France, in mid to late August 39, the war starts September 1st, 1939, uh, when Germany attacks Poland, but anyone who was uh, from Austria, Germany, anyone who was with the, quote, enemy country, uh, they were going to be put into internment camps. And they were be, being gathered to be put in an internment camp. Well, Cesar had come from Franco's uh, 
uh, country, and he knew a bunch of Spanish Republicans in there, and he knew a bunch of people starting to work very quietly in the in underground in Paris already with refugees who were in danger. And he was, had, we find out that Cesar was creating false papers for some of these refugees and had learned how to do it from patriots just across the border in um, Catalonia and France. So he takes them aside and says, you, you, you have to go undercover now or you will go into the camp. And they were, I mean, they just fled Berlin, you know, you can imagine. But the evolution of Cesar, the reason he had to be in the story is this. Uh, originally, he was not in the story, but I, I went to France twice in 2018, the first time, and then 2019 to go after all the details that I then knew I needed to finish the book. And thank God I did, because we all know what happened after 2019. And, and so I was standing on the edge of the Pyrenees, uh, uh, this road that goes uh, from the last town in France, Cerbère, uh, down to Port Bouc. And it's at the top of this, this big hill. And you go down into Spain around this road and you climb up to it in France. And I was standing there and the wind was blowing. It was a summer day. And I was thinking, I'd done a lot of reading about this, the, the, uh, you know, the people in Spain who had uh, fled and who they were and the fact that many of them were soldiers and mothers and fathers and how the, how the uh, Germans shot at them on the road. And I mean, it was quite, it, I, I didn't know about this. And so I started reading deeper into that time frame of that moment in history. And so I was imagining all this as I was standing there. And so all of a sudden, I mean, this will sound kind of funny, but I've heard other writers that this happens to also. Somebody started whispering in my ear, you know, and this, this little voice in my left ear was saying, yes, this is where all this happened. Um, my name is Cesar and you need to include me in your story. Your main character needs me and I will help her with what she needs to be doing um, to help with this, this whole situation in Vichy, France. And I'm like, well, actually before that exact moment, I thought I was probably gonna write this book. I wasn't completely sure. It's a huge endeavor. I'm a memoirist. I've been writing memoirs. I know everybody in my memoir. I don't have to create characters out of thin air, you know? And so I, I wasn't sure I could really do the novel. Cesar starts talking to me, tells me his name, tells me he needs to be in the book. And I just went, okay, <laughs> I'm going to do it. So that's how I met him. And then I did a lot more research about who would he have been, you know, in that era. Uh, he would be educated. He was on a, being trained to be a doctor. I got a couple people to help me with, you know, what he would have been doing likely in Barcelona at that time and so on. And then I did a lot of research to track how the war, war was coming through Spain, the, the Spanish Civil War, and when it got to where everybody was fleeing. When was that? What time of year? What was the weather like? You know, so there was a lot connected to it. But I love Cesar. <laughs> 
That is fascinating. And, and I would like to say that's a bit unusual, but if you listen to this podcast, you know, it's not. Because, <laughs> yes. Authors talk about that, having that same experience all the time. I know. Uh, I, I Just being at the Historical Novel Society conference, I got to hang out with a bunch of those people and I felt right at home. I want to ask you about your grandmother. Can you tell us about her experience and how that experience influenced this novel? Hmm. Well, I grew up with my grandmother in a small town in Oklahoma, and she uh, was in her 50s by the time I ended up living with her. And she <clears throat> she wasn't in Europe, but she, you know, everybody in America had just gone through the war, too. She and her friends it was 1951 and they'd all get together and play cards and talk about the war and talk about various things. But the other thing is she was an Anglophile and I didn't find out till I wrote my, my second memoir song of the plains and was able to get deep into ancestry.com that she'd actually been to England five times. So that's when I found out about that. But when I was growing up, I knew she'd been to England. I didn't know it was more than once. And as when I was a teenager, we finally got a TV and um, we would listen, she would have us watch documentaries about the war because she was a loved history, read all kinds of history through all the hundreds of years of English and European history. She was a self-educated person, and but she did her research, you know, she did a lot of reading. And so she, there were times though, when we were watching, you know, some of these documentaries and she'd stomp around the house going, you know, she loved Churchill. She'd say, at Roosevelt, we left, we left England standing alone. And she would be all upset and waving her cigarette. And I'd be like, huh, what is she talking about? So I was curious. And so I, I learned a lot though. I mean, I actually watched Holocaust documentaries in those years, which were pretty intense. And now we see them assembled in the World at War collection, but that collection wasn't made until the 70s. Um, so we were watching the, the pre-assembled versions of these documentaries. So it was her fascination, her interest, her love of, of, of England and, and all things European uh, that got me to, you know, reading more about about World War II, but there was a moment in 1971 that absolutely kicked me into the last, you know, almost 50 years here of, of, of reading World War II, anything World War II I could get my hands on, and nonfiction and fiction, mostly nonfiction early on. So I was working at a library, University of Illinois, and somebody uh, laid a Time magazine down on the front desk it had a picture of Hitler on it. And he was man of the year. I almost had a heart attack. I'm like, what? How could this possibly be? But it was printed and written in the now time of 1938. So I read the whole thing. It was so shocking to me. And I said to myself, okay, I need to know how this guy got to, you know, got to be who he is. How did he take over the country? How did he practically take over the whole world? So my first book, of course, would, was uh, Shira's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, because you get this really excellent overview. And of course, there's a million other books, and I read many of them. But that was the first one. And then I just kept reading because I was so curious about that. Um, read lots of books of what it was like in Germany 
Uh, there's a very good uh, book by Marion Kaplan. I can't think of the title right now, but it was uh, it's about the in the home life of Jews in Berlin, which gave me insights to how Mr. Lieb and and um, Sarah and Eva and everybody else, um, you know, was living during those years as this slow. Somebody describes it on. Uh, on the one of the world at war interviews is it, it came at them drip by drip she she said and after but slowly you know unlike vienna <laughs> where in one day they've taken over you know so i just had done a lot of background reading already but i refreshed myself on all of it because i wanted to be extremely accurate completely accurate with dates and also I wanted to create a mood. I mean, the mood of the war, they escaped, you know, Berlin, but then the war, the, the, the war and Hitler comes at them kind of drip by drip while they're in France. This, there's the Kristallnacht, there's, you know, there's what happened in Czechoslovakia and the Sudetenland and all those things until finally we do get to the attack September 1st by which time they do have their forged papers. But it was pretty weird. You know, I thought, okay, my background is a psychotherapist. And so I looked at it as a question of identity. Well, who are you and how do you manage your internal world if you become, quote, someone else, you know, and you have a different name and you have to remember that name and or, or your life could be in danger. You know, so that completely fascinated me. You've talked about uh, you're a memoir memoirist and you're the founder of the National Association of Memoir Writers. Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the challenges of switching from memoir to fiction? And what are some of the similarities and differences between the two genres? Great question. And it's it's a, it's a big one. So, yeah, well, in memoir, like I was mentioning, you, if it's your own lived experience, and we know that when we're living experiences, we are sensually experiencing the world through our, through our five senses, through our bodies and our minds, and we know what we saw and felt. I mean, to whatever degree we can accurately depict that, that is our job as a, as a memoirist and to be emotionally honest and so on and, and of course really even in memoir you're shaping and creating visually and and through dialogue and every other way your quote characters who might have been real people to you but they are characters to people in the memoir they don't know these people so i've been doing that for a long time you know right learning about developing characters learning about developing scenes and making something visually active and where people can actually feel in their own bodies what is going on or there's this whole mirror image thing that happens when we're reading and the writer's done a really good job of creating that world we experience it as if we are there and that's the hard <laughs> fun and hard job of writing you know so um but the thing that gave me pause originally that continued to be an enormous challenge was, well, how do you decide what to make up? Now, the thing I was happy about in writing historical fiction is that at least I had some signposts I could hold on to. 
you know, I mean, it really was always, this book was always historical fiction. And I thought, okay, well, I can pin those signposts of time and place and event and significance down there in, in the novel. And then I'll work around it. But of course, you know, because we talked about it at the, at the discussions in the conference and you've talked to a lot of writers, the thing we kind of want to do because we're kind of greedy to drink up all this history and let everybody else know about it because it's so darn interesting is, well, how much do you include? You know, how? So I was, did the same thing that everybody else does, which is I put in too much uh, at first. But, you know, there it was. And then I, I learned how to make things much shorter, thanks to some coaches that I had. And I understood why. I mean, it, it certainly made sense. Um, and I got better at letting go of a bunch of stuff, but putting enough in that maybe hopefully your reader could just feel, you know, could feel the danger, feel the moment, feel whatever was going on. What listeners might not know is that you and I met each other just a couple of days ago in San Antonio at the Historical Novel Society yes. North America Conference. Um, and I'm sure that our listeners, if they like historical fiction, if they are historical fiction writers, mm -hmm. they may not have heard about uh, eight, the Historical Novel Society. So why don't you um, take a moment, tell us about the conference, uh, what you enjoyed about it, and just what is it exactly? <laughs> well... I, oh man, it was wonderful. I mean, it you know, to find out that there were a bunch of other people I knew by reading, I'd read enough historical fiction interviews and I'd listened to yours and, and I was doing my research about who are these other historical fiction authors. I mean, I've been reading dozens and dozens and dozens of historical fiction authors and they often have author notes and talk about what they struggled with, including how much research to include in everything. So. I knew that I was going to be meeting people basically in my tribe, you know, uh, to go to this conference. And everything that we're talking about, including, you know, how do you decide to make things up, which is essentially how do you develop character and how do you develop plots, given the historical context, et cetera, and all the things that need to happen was a complete part of pretty much every conversation, every class that I went to and, you know, and, and especially as people who are also talking about dual timelines and I don't know that I'm going to do that kind of thing, but I went to the workshop, two of them actually, because the way they were talking about how to decide things, I mean, that's still a new skill to me. I'm, I'm going to do a follow-up book. I hope I'm thinking about it, but uh, you know, how do you decide and then how do you break chrono chronology? How do you arrange puzzle pieces? How do you decide, you know, uh, how to reveal this character and then this character and, and, and all those questions? I mean, it was part of, you know, basically every conversation. And then, you know, at the lunches, there's these lunches, you get to meet all these new friends and new people, we exchange cards and um, I'm starting an interview series for historical fiction authors, and so one of my goals was to give any anybody who would take it uh, a special postcard that I created, so they can find my website and, and and find out about my story, the story behind the story interview series that I'm I'm just starting to do. And so then everybody said yes, you know. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, this is fantastic. So. 
like you, I mean, you know, I'm going to be having conversations. I've been doing interviews with authors for the last, you know, 15 years or something like that. So I'm very comfortable talking to people about their books and, and I, and I think it'll be a lot of fun, but the other thing that made it terrifically amazing is we were all together as human beings and we've just come out of COVID and I didn't know whether I'd wear a mask or not, but it would have been too hard to, you know, talk to people and meet them. And I just let go. I went, hopefully none of us will get sick. I just have to operate on faith and I'm here and, you know, and everybody was fabulous. The hotel was incredible. And it was just, I got pretty high on, on the whole few days and, you know, hope to go to the next one or present someday. We'll see, you know, but, uh, it was fantastic. It was great to meet you. I saw that you were moderating that one that one particular conference. I'm like, okay, I got to meet Colin. Yeah, I, I I definitely had a great time as well, and it's it's really nice to you know I I'm, well in fact, at least a dozen or more of the authors I've had on the podcast were at the conference, and so it was so great to actually talk to them in person and and. I know a lot of podcasts now operate on video. We're just doing audio here, so I don't get the, the, the face-to-face even this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's like, you know, uh, it's sort of like meeting old friends that you're just now meeting, <laughs> you know, in, in real time. But I feel it just felt so comfortable. I really needed that shot in the arm because I didn't know about all you guys <laughs> until recently. I mean, I was just inventing my own little thing here i did get some good coaching and then i had a terrific editor and she and she really shook me up around creating more tension and more crises and um, i don't know if you want to hear that story it's kind of fun yeah go for it okay so my editor jody fodor um i i was doing a revision i mean i knew i needed to do a revision and i need to dig deep and, and have somebody really push me so um, she read one version early last year and got through it by like May or June or something and said, okay, you need to create more tension and more crises and more ways where your characters aren't okay. And she pointed out that what I would do is I'd have this scene play out or that one. And at the end of the scene, everything was cool. Everything was fine, you know? And finally we realized, uh, and I thank her for this, she says, you're trying to comfort everybody all the time. You're trying to make everything okay. And I said, oh my God, that's because I've been a therapist for 40 years. I want everybody to be fine. I want them to be happy. I want everything to turn out well. And though that was the biggest shift is, is I intellectually had read and heard and knew intellectually, you got to create trouble for your characters and your protagonists and everything all the way through. And you need to create suspense and you need to create, you know, even some cliffhanger type things if you can. But that was the biggest huge mountain for me to climb is, okay, make them bad, sad, <laughs> wounded, hurt, crying, you know, angry. I was like, okay, I, I'll, okay, I will. So we spent the second revision uh, clicking all those boxes 
Well, you sound pretty inspired. I mean, after that and after the conference. So what's what's the first thing that you're ready to get going on now that you're back home? <laughs> well, my launch is on July 11th, which is in uh, one day less than one month uh, from where we are right now. And so I hit the ground running. I, I'm working with, I'm published by She Writes Press, and we call it the sisterhood together because uh 50 of us in one group uh, are published at once uh, in the spring and 50 in the fall, and we call that our cohort. And so we had a cohort meeting this morning. We've been meeting once a month for several months now. And what we're doing is creating support and learning between all of us. If somebody finds out about something, we share it with somebody else. But not only that, today or now, and we're in the middle of all this, uh, we're working on working on Instagram. I really need to you know be more there i'm just learning about it now and and sharing and and sharing each other's stuff and commenting more and a lot of people were talking about that at the conference so just between each other okay i'll follow you what's your email address you know what's your 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 website and so on and so the big thing for me is to work with um a designer to get some more some more memes out there announcing the launch and all that but i have created my website which is lindajoymyersauthor.com recreated it uh, to welcome this book and that's where the interviews are going to live and the forger of marseille also has some history in there there's a new blog and a new newsletter uh, that i am now needing to feed and water a great deal now that i'm back um, and i'm working with someone on ideas for what the next book will be so juggling a few balls at once right now. Well, Linda, congratulations on The Forger of Marseille, and thank you so much for uh, joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Colin. So great to meet you, and I love your history through, through fiction. We're at heart joined, and um, I appreciate you so much. <laughs>